Hello and welcome to the latest weekly edition of the Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me today, back on duty in the new year again, is Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. So let's kick off, Simon, this week. Uh, tell us about what's been happening in the market. Well, it's been a, a tricky week for the market this week. The investment company sector is probably going to end about 2% down, and that'll be broadly in line with the wider UK marketplace. So the FTSE All Share probably um, end about 2% down for the week. Uh, in terms of the sector average discount, uh, as people may remember, it really tightened in towards the end of 2020, probably got to about 1.5%. And we've seen it widen out a little bit in the first two weeks of the year. It got to about three, three and a half percent at one stage this week. Probably just going to close just inside three percent. So uh, a little bit, of, a little bit of uh, discounts widening out across the pace. Indeed, and this is only we're into week two of the new year, obviously. And uh, there is an old market adage that you know, as goes January, so goes the year. Once upon a time, I think that might have had some merit. It doesn't seem to be borne out by the uh, statistics more recently. It's one of those things that people used to say and no longer believe, I don't think. And we're only halfway through the month. So what do you think has been happening this week? What's your sense of what's been going on in the market? Is it just a bit of reaction to the quite strong finish to the to the year last year? Yeah, I think that's right. I think people are still looking for a little bit of direction. I mean, obviously, the events in, uh, in America and in the US have really uh, got a lot of attention. But in particular, actually, this week, in terms of President-elect uh, Joe Biden's plans for a stimulus package, uh, lots of talk of 1.9 trillion, which sounds a, an awfully large number, his relief plan. Uh, but that's now been scrutinised carefully uh, and people are trying to work out the political fallout from that. So I think the market's got quite a bit to digest. Clearly, it's January. The coronavirus numbers are still very high. There's a lot to be, frankly, a little bit depressed about. Uh, so it's a case of, I think, working through where we are at the moment. And again, it's been a pretty thin week for Investment Trust News. Let's just go through some of the items that have come up, and then we might talk about some of the sector research and so on that you've been doing, which is going to come out in your review of the year. is coming out quite soon, I believe, hotly awaited by enthusiasts around the world. So let's kick off this week with some corporate news. I'm afraid we're back to our, one of another our old friends, Gabelli Value Plus Plus. Uh, this saga just won't lie down. What's the latest development in this ongoing situation? Well, you're right. This is this is the fund that, that sadly won't die. It failed its continuation vote last year. That The problem is, as people may remember, is that the largest shareholder, Associated Capital Group, um, which is linked to the investment manager, has, has made it clear that it doesn't wish the fund to uh, go into liquidation. The board have announced this week that they intend to uh, press ahead anyway. They're going to convene a general meeting to make proposals for a member's voluntary liquidation. Now, this requires 75% of votes cast in favour in order to pass. So in theory, Associated Capital Group have a, a blocking uh, share. But again, the board has said that they're happy to have discussions with them. They're happy to maybe meet them halfway and make an in-species transfer or offer a rollover into another vehicle. But again, the board have made it clear that if this vote uh, is defeated, in other words, if Associated Capital Group vote against it, because I think it's quite clear that the vast majority of other shareholders are in favour of winding this fund up, then they will put a, a tender offer on the table. And uh, this week they gave some details of that. It's been talked about before, but the company has uh, assets of around about £150 million at the moment. 
of which uh, distributable reserves uh, are just short of 100 million, so uh, probably about two thirds or so. So that's the number that they're talking about in terms of a potential tender offer, so that'll be money returned to shareholders. The issue thereafter is what happens to the remaining uh, assets of the company. It would obviously be 50 million or so. Um, the board argue that that would be uneconomic and possibly there would be an issue over shares in public hands. It may be forced to delist. So again, we're going to be talking about Gabelli value plus plus for a little while yet. So the difference between obviously the two types of resolution, one requiring 75% and the other requiring 50% is quite critical in this situation. I guess if the company associated with the management company does not you know, put any shares into the tender, it would be a risk it would actually end up with more than half the shares of the company. Is that a possible outcome if they do manage to distribute all their reserves? And everybody uh, takes it, it, it could well be a, a possibility. I mean, there would be issues then in terms of they'd have to get a waiver to ensure that the the shareholder didn't become then liable to make a takeover bid for the rest of the company, because obviously the rules are if you own over 30% of a publicly listed company, uh, then you are obliged to make a bid. There are various ways of getting around that, but it requires, again, shareholder permission to do it and uh, uh, permission from the relevant authorities. So I, I, I think the long and the short of it all is this is all a bit of a mess and really it requires uh, probably the investment manager to, to, to sit down with the board and kind of work their way through this. It's not, not going away. There are no particular easy solutions, but um, I think talk is required. Yeah, just to remind us, I mean, they, the management company had made their own proposals, right? But the board is not taking those on board at this point. Well, to be fair, the um, I think it was a general meeting just ahead of Christmas at which those proposals were put to shareholders and they were roundly defeated. So, you know, they, they did have their moment to make their case and, and, and shareholders um, were not in favour, excluding themselves, obviously. But so they've they've tried that. So there is a, there is a standoff, a Mexican standoff. I think you've described this in the past and, and that's still where we find ourselves. Well, if, there's, if we're still talking about this at the end of the year, uh, certainly I will need to go and get a stiff drink and to get through it all again. Uh, let's uh, talk about something else happened this week. Uh, there's some interesting geopolitical development this week in the sense of some regulations coming out of the US which affect uh, companies or investment companies that are investing in China and Asia. Can you tell us what that's all about and uh, what the uh, reaction of those companies has been? Yeah, this is an, an interesting development. I don't think it's anything that anyone needs to get too concerned about uh, in the here and now. But just to give a little bit of a background. So in November last year, President Trump uh, issued an executive order, which basically prohibits US persons from engaging in any transaction in publicly traded securities of 35 Chinese companies that have been identified as communist Chinese military companies. So that's their description, not mine. And basically what it means is that if you are an investment trust company, potentially with US investors on your shareholder register, you have to be quite careful not to have holdings in those uh, 35 companies. Or if you do, make it clear, basically disclose it, I think seems to be the direction of where we're going. Now, if you can actually look down those lists of those companies, the communist Chinese military companies, uh, and there's a, there's a variety, uh, defence technology, power companies, but there are a couple that uh, you do see with some regularity in uh, emerging market and Asian portfolios. Uh, China Mobile, probably an obvious one, or a Sinuk, an oil company in China. And the, the theory is from the, the Trump administration is that, that they're pushing back against, as they describe it, the increasing, exploiting US capital to resource and enable the development uh, and mobilization of, of uh, the military against uh, US interests. So it'd be interesting to see if the Biden administration take a different view on this. 
So far, we've had 12 investment companies come out and, and declare the position. The majority actually don't really have any exposure. It's, it's very um, minimal. Uh, a couple are in the kind of 2.5% bracket. But again, to be clear, they have until November this year, so the 11th of November 2021, to basically divest of those holdings. Uh, and if they don't, one would assume that US holders would no longer be able to keep their shareholding in the investment company. So it's a useful reminder, if may not be immediately significant, it's a useful reminder that the ongoing tensions between the US and, and China uh, could have a bearing on some investment companies. Obviously, we don't know whether President Biden will actually uh, pursue this kind of Trumpian tactic when he finally gets to the White House. Uh, what's been the reaction, though? Have, has it had any impact on the performance of Chinese investment companies? We know they've been doing very well recently, very popular, or some of the Asian trusts. Has, has there been any discernible impact? Obviously, the, the impact appears to be pretty minimal at the moment, but um, has, has the share prices reacted to that? Do they think this is a credible threat to their what they can and can't invest in? Um, I think the simple answer is no. Um, I think, as I said, it's probably something to watch. But if you look at the, I mean, there are three investment trusts focused entirely on China at the moment. Uh, two of the three are actually trading on quite decent premiums. We've got the JP Morgan Fund, China Growth and Income on a 6% premium. We've got the Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust on a probably near a 12% premium. So there's nothing entirely obvious that they've been derated on the back of it. And frankly, they've been performing very well. Even the, the Fidelity China special sets, just to finish off the set, they're only on a small discount of 2% or so, and, and they've traded on a premium in recent times. So this is an area of the marketplace that um, shareholders seem to like and, and, and has performed very well. But again, I think probably the big story here is the direction of travel. Um, it's interesting enough, it did come up this week in a presentation by Tom Slater and James Anderson at Bailey Gifford, who are the managers of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. They were asked about this uh, and they took the view that actually they saw the opportunity less in these large Chinese companies that have connections to the state and more in the, in the wider marketplace. And obviously, they've got very much a growth bent to what they do. But I think that reaction would be quite common across the, the investment space. I think most investment managers who play Chinese companies would, would not necessarily look to those kind of large companies anyway. But um, I, I think there, is, there are direction of travel issues very much looking on the medium term view. Indeed, because there are many observers uh, think that at least there will continue to be uh, issues between Chinese and, and the US even under the new presidential regime. So that is certainly one we might uh, keep an eye out for. Let's move on then to a company results. Uh, let's start with an old favourite of mine, which is the Independent Investment Trust. Maynard Keynes used to be involved in this one, I think, many years ago, back in the 1920s. But a lot has changed since then, and it's now managed out of Edinburgh by uh, Max Ward, a former Bailey Gifford fund manager. Tell us about Independent Investment Trust results this year. Yep, so they had their annual results out to the end of uh, November, November last year. In that period, their NAV total return was down about 2% or so, and that compared with a uh, benchmark return, which was down 10%, so they outperformed. In share price total return terms, they were down just very, very slightly, about 0.2%, uh, as the discount narrowed a little bit. That sounds relatively dull, but actually, it's been quite an interesting year for independent investment trusts. I think that's probably true for most years. Certainly, they struggled in the first half of that financial period. Again, if, if you get the chance to hear Max Ward uh, present or speak or, or read his investment reports, they're, they're certainly well worth a read. He's a highly experienced investor, um, and this is really a stock picker's portfolio. And in the first half of that financial year, uh, obviously, they were, as most people weren't, positioned for uh, a global pandemic. Uh, coronavirus hit the portfolio quite hard, and they reacted by raising cash uh, in March, which 
as the manager says, with the benefit of hindsight, was probably the wrong thing to do uh, because obviously they sold some of their companies, uh, which ultimately kind of bounced back quite hard. But actually saying that, in the second half of their financial year, they, they did perform quite well. They kind of caught up that period of underperformance uh, and some of their holdings did very well indeed. So they're, they're playing some of the tech stocks, uh, companies such as Herald Investment Trust, actually also in the Investment Trust Universe. Gamma Communications did very well. They've got some computer game companies. And as I say, they, they finished the year strongly. The, the cash level is quite interesting as well. They've actually been uh, deploying some of that cash. It was 19% of the portfolio at the end of November, so uh, the, the period they reported. But actually, it's come down to about 12% or so as we hit mid-January. So an interesting portfolio. Uh, Max has always got some very good ideas, I think, or some very uh, worth, worth considering ideas in terms of his stock selection. So uh, probably one to, to catch up with at some stage. Yes, he is an interesting uh, guy, and it's a, it's a trust in which both he as a manager and the chairman have a very significant uh, personal holding, and they have done that for a number of years. So this is one where you'd, if you're aligned with their interests, you're going to uh, feel you're in good company with them, and they are pursuing a particular investment approach, uh, focusing typically around a few themes that Max likes. Uh, always an interesting one, but are quite volatile. They've had some ups and downs over the years. Uh, but their long-term record isn't at all bad. How have the market reacted to these results then? You're right. It, it has been volatile over the years. I mean, the long-term numbers are very good. I think they had some stats over the 20-year performance, and they had a, an annualised return over 11% per annum. It worked out at, uh, versus 4.5% for the, the FTSE All share, so significant outperformance. But again, there have been some periods where they've given quite a bit of their outperformance back. At the moment, they're trading on a, an 11% discount, so relatively wide compared with where they would be a few years ago. But in the last 12 months, something they've averaged a 12% discount and flipped between a NAV and a 22% level. Uh, and that probably reflects the, the fact that they did have that difficult period, certainly in the first half of last year. Yes, I think it's fair to say, I was looking at the share price, it hasn't quite recovered to the levels before the sell-off in February, March, and that's partly down to the discount, I'm sure. Um, it is an interesting one, though. And as you say, Max is a very interesting uh, gentleman. I mean, he used to. I don't know if it's still the case, but he pretty much works on his own. And, uh, you know, he does his own research and uh, has done very well over the years. Tends to back. He was an early investor in Fever Tree, I remember. Did very well out of that. Uh, and a number of other tend to, tend to be smaller companies, most of them. Uh, so a very interesting one. And one to, let's say, with an interesting history as well. For those who are interested in investment trust history, go back to the days of Keynes and uh, Oswald Falk. Interesting history there for some people. While we're on mentioning Bailey Gifford, this is a uh, the Scottish Mortgage presentation. You had a chance to listen to that, Simon, did you? And if so, um, what, what message did you take away from that, apart from the question about the Chinese uh, regulations coming out of the US? Well, Tom Slater and James Anderson have, have for a number of years now, done a kind of address uh, in January, the early part of the year. Uh, normally they uh, do one in London, one in Edinburgh, uh, rather nice uh, kind of livery halls. Obviously, uh, not to be at the moment. It was all across Zoom, uh, which you'd think would be a, a natural format for anyone working for, for Bailey Gifford. But they've always got some very interesting things to say. Obviously, the subject of valuations came up, as it always does, um, in terms of the growth opportunities that they're seeing. Tesla got mentioned uh, a couple of times more through the Q&A than I think from talking about it necessarily. But they're still very excited about the, the, the growth opportunities that they're, they're seeing. There was quite a lot of conversation about the private companies that are in the portfolio for Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust and the pipeline of opportunities that they're seeing. And they talked about some of the themes in there. We, there was a quite a lot of conversation about electric vehicles, EV, 
as everyone refers to it these days, uh, and also energy sources as well, a lot of talk about uh, solar. Um, so, I mean, clearly Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust has had a tremendous run. I mean, you know, the best performing FTSE 100 stock last year. And you might think that a, a different set of managers might be slightly triumphant, uh, you know, when it came to present to their shareholders of their investment base. But there's not one little bit of that from the SMT team. I, I think they are very much, as they make clear, long-term uh, investors and aren't always looking to the future. I think lots of interesting points. I mean, one of the things they talked about, and this isn't a new theme at all, was how they're trying to build their links with the academic community, um, how they are trying to get away from the, the bubble that is the financial markets uh, and talk to, to people who are, uh, dare we say it, uh, experts in their chosen fields rather than people who just uh, try and move stocks uh, around for a living. And they gave some insight into some of the conversations that they're having and some of the trends that they're picking up as a result of that. But Bailey Gifford are very good at uh, putting them on, on platforms and allowing investors a chance to hear their thoughts. But I would encourage anybody uh, who does own Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust or is likely to to hear what they have to say, because I think it is a little bit different from uh, most run-of-the-mill uh, investment managers. Yes, I would certainly endorse that. Uh, always an interesting set of speakers. And they do have this interesting approach, which has obviously worked incredibly well. And therefore, everybody's now flocking to, to buy the shares or to hold the shares, but not always necessarily appreciating the depth of the uh, conviction with which they follow their positions. And they do it for a long term and they're happy to live with uh, volatility. You may recall that during the uh, global financial crisis, the shares in Scottish mortgage did take a tremendous tumble. They were down about 40 or 50 percent, as I recall. And that threw a lot of people out just at the time when they should have been coming back in again. Uh, but they as consistently stuck to their last, and uh, I imagine will go on doing so as long as those two at least are in charge of the portfolio. So it's well worth understanding it. Another basic lesson, obviously, we, we bang on about. You really want to understand what the, the trust is doing. You don't want to just look at the numbers, though, however impressive they are, and invest for that reason. So everything, everybody will be watching to see how well Scottish Mortgage does this year. Can it repeat its performance? I think almost certainly not. Up 100% in a year is an extraordinary achievement for a company that size or investment trust that size. But it can still go on churning out the numbers if the underlying portfolio continues to perform in that way. But there are some strategic risks as well around it. Let's move on then to uh, Genesis Emerging Markets. What's the story there? They've made an announcement this week. What, uh, what have they had to say? Yeah, so this is uh, not a results announcement, but they published a letter to shareholders effectively looking at 2020, so last year and how they got on. Um, and in that time, their NAV total return uh, was up about 13% in sterling terms, and that compared with 15% for their benchmark, the MSCI Emerging Markets. And interesting uh, insights again from, from uh, this investment manager, the relative performance was, was helped by being uh, underweight uh, North Asia. So by that, I think you can probably take China and also having a larger weighting to frontier markets or some earlier stage markets. But they talked about the uh, aggregate position they had in the top four index stocks, which is Alibaba, Tencent, TSMC and Samsung Electronics. And apparently those four stocks alone in their portfolio contributed over a third of their uh, total return in the period, but actually detracted because they were underweight, the index has got 22% of allocation to those companies, uh, whereas they had 17, so it acted as, as a headwind. And I think that probably shows the problem, not just with emerging markets, to be fair, but with uh, a number of these mandates that actually, particularly last year, we saw performance driven by quite a small handful of stocks. And in many cases, a number of investment managers would, would feel uncomfortable having those kind of weightings in just uh, concentrated positions. But uh, again, the outlook is positive. 
they you know they made the point that they'd actually had some very good stock selection across the different countries uh, in their portfolio. Yes, that has become a big problem with this outperformance by a very small number of companies uh, which dominate the performance rankings. If you just want to stay up with the pace, to have uh, 22% of your portfolio in four companies is uh, quite a big ask. So let's for once be generous towards the fund managers and say that's an issue that they have to work their way around, though they are being well paid to do just that. Uh, another one in the similar sort of region to some extent, uh, JP Morgan Asia Growth and Income, and they've produced some results. These are obviously published results for the 12 months to the 30th September. They're not referring to the year as a whole, just to the first three quarters. And uh, what have they had to say, Simon? Yeah, so they, they had their annual results and uh, not a bad period. Their NAV total return was up about 9%. That compared with 12% for their benchmark. But actually, in share price total return terms, they were up 22%, so significant outperformance. Uh, and that was a reflection of the fact that they moved from a 10% discount to a, a premium of about 1%. So it just shows how re-ratings, discount movements can really make a difference to, to performance. So in NAV terms, their benchmark underperformance was attributed to uh, a little bit of a value bias, by which I think we can take that they were underweight some of the more growth-orientated uh, stocks. But they talked in the report about the decision they made actually three four years ago now to uh, pay an enhanced dividend. So just to remind people, they pay 1% of their NAV back to shareholders every quarter. So if their NAV were flat for the year, that would equate to a 4% yield, though clearly that's not the case. It does move around a little bit. So it's not a progressive dividend. The dividend can fall, and indeed it has done on a quarter-by-quarter basis, though actually year-on-year the dividend was up slightly for 2020, this particular period versus 2019. But they made the point that by paying that enhanced dividend, they've really expanded their shareholder base. I think they've seen a lot more retail uh, investors come onto their register. Uh, some of the long-term institutional players are probably sold down. Uh, and as a result, they've been able to issue some, some new shares as well. So that particular experiment has worked very well for this investment trust. Indeed it has. And uh, it's an interesting question why that should happen. Obviously, people do need income and they're prepared to pay up for it is, is the simple answer. But uh, of course, you might wonder uh, why that was uh, so important to make such a big difference to the share price. And I guess the second point to make is that, of course, having gone from minus 10 or roughly to par or even a small premium, it's quite difficult to repeat that again next year. You're not going to be able to get that little bump again unless they go all the way to a 10% premium. I suppose that's possible, but I would have thought that's relatively unlikely. So what was the final yield over the period of 12 months that's gone? Is it was obviously not quite 4% imagine overall on the year, or was it? I haven't got the, the exact number here. I can tell you the aggregate dividend was 15.8p, and certainly based on the current share price, that equates to a yield of 3.2%, uh, though obviously the dividend gets rebased every, every quarter. So that will move around a little bit. I mean, the average yield in the Asia-Pacific income space at the moment is just north of 4%, 4.1%. Uh, Henderson Forest income has actually a yield of 6.7% at the moment. So that's probably the, the outsized one. And then it goes down from there. So looking at their peer group, they're probably a little bit on the low side now. But as I say, it gets rebased every quarter. Yeah, interesting experiment. And as you say, so far it's worked very well, worked like a dream for them. Um, let's uh, move on then and talk about the Octopus Renewables Infrastructure Trust. Now, we know this is uh, a relatively new trust. What's uh, what's the story? Uh, what, what have they been uh, saying this week? It's not a, a nerve-shattering story, I think it's fair to say, but they've announced or they've made proposals to change their uh, investment policy. So, as you mentioned, they've only been going about a year or so. They launched uh, back in December 2019. 
but they're looking to, as I say, change their investment policy. There's a couple of aspects to that, one of which is to allow up to 5% of gross assets to be invested in uh, renewable energy assets under development uh, together with actual renewable energy developers and their pipelines. There's a couple of other aspects as well, which are probably more housekeeping elements, given that they've been running a year now. So they're just rebasing a couple of things. But I think that desire to back development uh, does give a little bit of an insight to what's going on in the renewable space. So Octopus uh, Renewables Infrastructure is investing uh, in solar and wind, and it's got uh, assets in the UK, France, uh, Sweden, actually just recently announced a Spanish solar site as well. But the fact that they're looking to maybe make a relatively modest uh, allocation to, to the development side, which historically has had more risk attached to it, I think suggests that that should help them secure a pipeline. I think that's actually quite important for a number of these renewables fund. It's an area of the marketplace where a lot of capital is being deployed. And it's, it is very important to make sure that you've got a good pipeline and all taxes, uh, some very attractive assets. And I suppose if one was being picky, one might say it's, it's slightly unusual to be changing your policy so soon after you actually launched on the market. Uh, would that be a fair comment? I mean, it's relatively uh, small in one sense, but uh, still quite significant. You thought they might have thought of this before they started. You're right. It is unusual. You don't often see uh, an investment trust company go for about a year and then come back and, and look to change uh, various bits and pieces. As I said, some of it's just you know good housekeeping. For instance, there's diversification requirements. Apparently, the the policy has that they have to have a minimum of six different types of investments and obviously now they've grown larger they're looking to increase that so there's some things that just just tidying up at the edges but I think this move into into the development side I think this is probably uh, something that we'd like to see more of in the renewables space to be perfectly honest. Okay so let's move on while we're on the subject of uh, shareholders uh, approving changes to investment policy let's just quickly catch up on Odyssean we mentioned them before they have been proposing a small change in their investment policy too, and I think that's now been approved by shareholders. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So they announced this uh, ahead of Christmas, but basically this week we had the meeting, the virtual meeting, probably the general meeting, and shareholders overwhelmingly supporting changes to their investment policy. Uh, and this was to uh, restrict investment, actually restrict investment in certain sectors or businesses uh, that the board in conjunction with their manager, deemed to be unethical and uh, potentially unsustainable. And really the thesis here is that, that, that companies that are seen to, to have unethical or unsustainable business models are likely to underperform uh, over the long term as capital is allocated away from, from those type of industries. So I think this is something that's kind of come naturally out of the investment team, so it's Stuart Wilson and Ed Wilchowski's investment process and I think it's something that they wanted to kind of put in black and white and articulate and make quite clear to their, their shareholder base that this is very much part of what they do. But again, I think, is this a trend that we could see across the investment trust sector? I don't think it's impossible. I think there are an uh, increasing number of investors who are looking to ensure that their funds, their capital is being deployed in, in the right way. Uh, and obviously, it's not going to suit all investment trusts, but for those such as Odyssean that this doesn't actually work with and possibly makes sense to codify it and encapsulate it in your investment policy. It's certainly a trend and indeed it may become a bandwagon but it's certainly a trend at the moment and in, how could one uh, possibly object to that in some senses? It's a move in certainly a good direction. Let's talk about a trust that we don't seem able to, apart from the Cabelli value plus plus, we don't seem able to get through a week without mentioning and that is our old friends at Hypnosis Songs Fund, Song. They have been making 
Another announcement this week. They're rolling off the production line at a, at a huge rate, and that's an issue which you might talk about in a minute. But first of all, let's just tell us what they've been saying. So the news this week from Hypnosis is that they've acquired the catalogue from uh, Shakira, which I'm sure is a, a favourite of, of yours. They've acquired 100% of her music publishing rights, and that's her entire catalogue, which comprises 145 songs. And just for people who are probably a little bit less familiar with her talents, she's been going... Actually, I had appreciated this. Since 1991, she's sold over 80 million records. So she's the best-selling female Latin artist of all time, and she's the most streamed female Latin artist on Spotify, which is probably uh, more to the point. Uh, and her songs have been streamed apparently billions of, of time. But it's uh, such classics such as She Wolf and Whenever, Wherever, and I'm sure there's a handful of other names as well. Well, let's just quickly talk about this issue because we keep on talking about it because it's a sort of fun subject, but it's also a very serious business. And uh, it's interesting you, if you uh, follow some of the analyst research that, uh, that I see, certainly. I mean, there are some differences of opinion between analysts about this company. Some of them have raised some questions about the catalogues they acquire and the songs they, they get the rights to, how they are valued. That's something we've alluded to in the past. And then obviously there's some concerns about the speed at which they, they are growing this business, the speed at which they're raising new money, uh, before we've actually had time to see how the original investments have turned out. So it's an interesting one. As I say, some analysts seem to be uh, enthused and others seem to raise some interesting questions about both the valuation and indeed the accounting. What are your thoughts about Song, Simon? It's a really interesting asset class. It has captured the imagination. Obviously, it's raised a lot of money as well. And uh, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's kind of brought a, a rare dash of glamour into the investment company uh, sector. And uh, it's not often we can say that. But I, I think we've got to put it in context a little bit. I mean, hypnosis have obviously deployed a, a lot of capital in the last few years. But it, it's not just them, frankly. I mean, uh, if you follow the media reports, I mean, even this week, I mean, we had uh, uh, Mick Fleetwood of uh, Fleetwood Mac who sold his catalogue to, to BMG. Uh, and just recently, Stevie Nicks, also Fleetwood Mac, sold her catalogue to uh, a US investor, Primary Wave. So I think this is a, a trend. We're only seeing one part of it in the UK with hypnosis. And obviously, we've got Roundhill uh, as well. But this, there's obviously a movement the other side of the Atlantic as well. In terms of the investment manager, are they paying the right price for these uh, assets are they overpaying is that the reason why they've been able to deploy so much capital in quite a relatively short period of time it's possible and to be honest uh, time will tell they're quite clear the thesis is that these catalogs are worth more today than they have been um, certainly five ten years ago or even more recently than that and that's a reflection of the way that the marketplace is developing particularly in terms of um, streaming music um, so they make a strong case uh, and that obviously allows them to you know, value catalogues in a different way than, again, would have been the case a number of years ago. I think it's important to recognise as well that with hypnosis, a key part of the story is the yield that it offers. These are dividend plays. There is an element of, of potential capital growth as well. They make that quite clear. But effectively, they're often quite attractive sources of yield. Uh, the yield on hypnosis on a historic basis at the moment is just above 4%, 4.2%. Uh, and for a number of investors, clearly that is attractive uh, at a time where we've seen any number of companies, particularly in the UK marketplace, uh, cut their dividends over the last year. So the fact that you've got the potential for capital growth and the potential to grow your, your dividend um, obviously does make them compelling and it's a key part of why they've been able to raise so much capital. Uh, but you're right, it, it is an area where people have questioned the accounting, questioned particularly the practice of acquiring assets and then immediately revaluing them. That's certainly a little bit unusual. The common practice in the private equity industry certainly is that uh, when you do make a new acquisition, then you hold the value for at least 12 months. 
uh, and then thereafter value based on um, earnings and comparable uh, multiples. Uh, clearly, that doesn't really apply to hypnosis and the catalogs that they're buying. But they would point out that they are uh, working with uh, independent valuers uh, and their you know, valuation methods are robust. I mean, from an analyst point of view, it is a little bit tricky to look at hypnosis, not least because the level of disclosure. I mean, we hear a lot about how many songs have been streamed and uh, you know how many Grammy Awards they've won and all that kind of thing. But there's less detail in terms of the actual price paid and what the catalogue has generated historically uh, in terms of cash. And I think, unfortunately, these are key metrics. And again, probably this will all come out over time. But at the moment, I think it makes it difficult to make a hard and fast call on them. Indeed, it does. Well, let's leave that one there for the moment. You say there'll be more time to come back to that one, but it is interesting. And what, just quickly on the share price and the discount, I mean, there are these different analyst views out there. Has that had any impact on the on the share price so far? The share price has softened a, a little bit this year. Um, they're trading probably about 120, 121p or so. It's That makes a small discount to their operating NAV, probably about 4%. So not a big sell-off by any stretch of the imagination, but the, the, certainly the share price has weakened just a little of late. Okay, so let's move on then to another investment trust which has had some interesting news here and which has some wider ramifications perhaps, uh, and that is our friend Schroeder UK Public Private Trust, formerly known as Woodford Patient Capital. They've made an announcement this week about one of their holdings, and that's had some interesting uh, reverberations as far as the whole Woodford saga is concerned. So why don't you tell us, what, first of all, Simon, what have what they said? So the announcement this week was that Sanofi would acquire uh, one of their portfolio companies, uh, which I think is pronounced KMAB, KIMAB. Let's go with KIMAB. The fund expects proceeds of 65 million, and that's initial proceeds on completion of the deal, which is expected in the first six months of this year. And that compares with a carrying value of 18 million at the end of September, which is the uh, last year, which is the last NAV that we've got. So that's clearly uh, good news, a good uplift. And in fact, there could be uh, more upside to come. There's a, another £5 million subject to potential deductions uh, over the next 24 months. And then on top of that, there are contingent payments of up to £20 million, depending on KIMAB achieving various milestones over a seven-year period. Now, Schroeder UK Public-Private have said that they will use the proceeds to uh, reduce their debt levels, uh, which are somewhere around about the £100 million mark, I seem to remember, uh, and also uh, look to support some of our portfolio companies uh, and indeed probably make some new investments. So good news from Schroeder UK Public-Private. Um, and as I say, there will be a, an uplift to the NAV. And we've seen that reflected in terms of how the share price uh, has performed this week. And what's happening to this? Where is the discount now? It obviously got very wide. It got up to sort of 40%, 50% at one point. Where are we now in terms of that, in terms of the share price and discount? So from the start of the year, it probably started the year about uh, 31p or so. It softened a little bit and uh, we're now at uh, 34p, um, having been at a low of 29p this year. So it's quite a volatile stock, I think it's fair to say, uh, but there was a good uplift on the back of this one but still trading on, on quite a significant discount. Um, I mean, even with the uplift, uh, you're talking at a discount above 20%. And I suppose one has to mention in passing that uh, obviously this is a gain that those who were invested in the open-ended Woodford Fund equity income fund did not see, uh, at least not to the same extent, because the manager or the management company took over the disposal of that when that open-ended fund was liquidated, sold it on and uh, didn't see the benefit of this particular increase in value. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's my understanding of it. We, do, we don't keep a hugely close eye on the open-end fund, but that's as reported in the media. So I'll count that as a win for the investment trust. 
structure perhaps in any case uh, we <laughs> we'd like to think so and it's uh, again another one a lot of people will be watching this one who did have a lot of shareholders and they obviously been disappointed by the impact of the whole Woodford saga uh, but the new management team seems to be at least starting to move it in the right direction though I think they said from the very beginning it was likely to be a long a long-term job to get it back to uh, either to par or indeed to delivering some outperformance. That's all the results we've had this week, but uh, let's talk about the private equity sector, where you've uh, put out some thoughts about that this week, Simon. And, uh, well, tell us first of all, how did the private equity sector do? Now we can look back at 2020 and um, see how it coped with the pandemic. And then beyond that, looking to uh, perhaps it's a longer-term track record. But let's start with how it performed last year and, uh, and what else you've got to say about it. Yeah, the listed private equity sector is always an interesting area to look at. It actually had a, a good year last year overall. Uh, it was up 6% on a subsector basis. Obviously, that compares to a fall of 10% for the UK market. But within that, there's a huge dispersion of returns. So Chrysalis Investments, uh, that's one that we talked about. It used to be called Merriam Chrysalis. That ended up about 53%. Uh, HD Capital, we talked about that one, that did very well, up 22%, and Standard Life Private Equity up 20%. But if you look at the other end of the scale, you've got Electra Private Equity, which fell 28%. This is all in share price, total return terms, and actually Shredder UK Public Private that we mentioned as well, that was down nearly 20% as well. So very different performance records from all those funds, and you've got to pick your winners quite carefully. But overall, the kind of listed private equity subsector has performed very well now for a number of years. You know, going back to the dark days of the global financial crisis in, in 2008 and into 2009, actually, the list of private equity funds did really struggle. And there's quite a few are no longer with us following that period. But actually, uh, in the years since, they have consistently outperformed uh, the UK marketplace. Initially, that was uh, as a reflection of uh, discounts narrowing. They, they went up into incredibly wide levels back in 2008-9. But more recently, it's been on the back of investment activity. Uh, the fact that when uh, we have seen disposals or realizations within these listed private equity companies, they've invariably been at good uplifts to their carrying values. So certainly the valuations seem to be on the conservative side, and that's really driven NAV performance and therefore uh, taken share price along with it. And also we've seen quite a lot of corporate activity. So as I mentioned, a number of the private equity uh, investment trusts are no longer with us. Others have returned capital, done buyback programs or tenders and so on and so forth. So the, the supply of these uh, listed private funds has diminished. And one, one would argue that the names left now are the survivors. They're probably the best in class. Uh, saying that, though, a number of them are still trading out on quite wide discounts. So uh, although you'll find Chrysalis Investments and um, HD Capital on quite significant premiums, uh, of the other end, you mentioned Shredder UK Public Private already, but uh, you know some of the fund of funds are trading out on 20 plus percent discounts. So there's still some quite large discounts in this area. I mean, one of the interesting questions there, I suppose, is, I don't know if you can answer that uh, at this point, but, you know, in NAV terms, how does private equity perform compared to listed equity funds? I mean, do they actually produce better performance or is it, in fact, mostly the discount movements that have actually produced the additional returns here? I suppose, prima facie, you would expect that you would be looking to see your private equity funds deliver slightly better NAV performance because they are... They're in the same business, but they have more flexibility, perhaps, about the way they manage their investments. Uh, that's always been a live issue about them. And uh, on the other hand, they're, they're possibly riskier because they have more debt and so on. So how would you see that uh, kind of continuum there? 
for the sector to work, I think you've got to demonstrate that the, the NAVs do outperform over the long term. I mean, there's always going to be periods when the NAVs will, will lag, you know, particularly when markets are on a bit of a hot street, because in very real, there is a time lag uh, in terms of NAV valuations. And ultimately, it's about realizations. It's when the actual underlying companies are sold that you realize there's profits. But if you take the, the five-year NAV total return numbers, and again, there's always a little bit of a lag uh, with those, but you look at names like HG Capital's up 141% uh, according to uh, our data over five years, which is you know significantly north of what you'll find for the FTSE All Share, for instance, it's up about 42% over the last five years. If you look at some of the fund of funds, uh, again, you know, there's a bit of a mismatch here because they, these are kind of global products, you know, they're investing around the world, but Harbourvest uh, Global Private Equity, for instance, up uh, 104% in NAV total return terms. Uh, Standard Life, not too far behind it, up 95%. Pantheon, uh, probably near it, about 80 ICG, Enterprise, uh, not dissimilar. So, you know, these are quite uh, attractive NAV total returns. But you're right, the rating does make a big difference as well. And we do, because of the time delay, I mean, at the moment, we're looking at these listed private equity funds. None of them have produced NAVs on the basis of a full revaluation at the end of uh, 2020. It takes a couple of months for that to come through. So invariably, we're looking at the value of these portfolios as at the end of September. So there is a time lag, and that, that's always the case. But if you look at share price total returns, there's some very, very strong returns. And um, you know, to, to, to pick out a couple of names, HG Capital's up 235% over five years in share price total return terms. Now, clearly, there's a re-rating element to that, and that will be true of some of the other names on the list as well. Uh, I mean, even something like Oakley Capital Investments, for instance, up 127% and yet still trading out quite a big discount. So it's a very it's a very interesting area of the investment trust space and one where you can find quite wide discounts. Indeed. And so just looking forward, I mean, do you, other things being equal, if we have a normal year this year, uh, as you say, the NAVs will come out and hopefully they will show some signs of improvement and catch up with the way the share price has moved and the discounts have moved. Uh, do you think there's still you know, a lot of demand for this particular type of investment trust from institutions and also from retail investors? I think there's uh, a demand for certain of these names. And again, the ratings would tell you that. So you look at a, an HG Capital, which has become increasingly um, focused on, on technology or tech-enabled businesses, is I think how they term it. Uh, and that's trading on a premium and it's performed very well. And again, some of the, the, the kind of growth capital names, so Chrysalis Investments trading on a premium, I mean, clearly people do like these names. I think it's a, a slightly harder argument for the funds of funds. Um, so names of Pantheon, Harbourvest, Standard Life, uh, where they uh, don't make direct private equity investments, they back other private equity investors uh, who then effectively have uh, limited partnerships. And so you're getting a much more diversified portfolio. They tend to be on wider discounts. And there are issues with those funds in some people's eyes, not least in terms of the fees. Private equity is an expensive asset class um, if not at 2 and 20, certainly kind of 1.5 and 20 at the underlying level and then a fee on top. Um, so the look-through fees are certainly higher than you would see in, in a lot of asset classes. And frankly, that puts people off and you, you can understand the reasons why that might be the case. Splendid. OK, so let's finish off then by just having another look back, uh, another piece of research you've done, just looking back at the issuance story in 2020, the year that we're probably going to want to forget unless we were a Scottish mortgage shareholder or a Bailey Gifford shareholder. Let's um, see how the issuance turned out over the course of the year in terms of both IPOs and secondary issuance. What's been the big sort of headlines in, in that particular story? It, it was a really interesting year last year for, for issuance. I think issuance and discounts are probably some of the key 
metrics that we look at in terms of kind of judging the health of the investment company sector. And in terms of the issuance, bearing in mind the volatility that we saw in that first half of the year, you might expect it'd be quite difficult to raise new capital for investment companies. But although the numbers were down on 2019, so they were down about 12% or so, um, it still came out, according to our data, at £7.8 billion raised across the sector last year, which is uh, not too shabby, actually. And, you know, you compare it of the average annual level since 2008, which is £6.1 billion. So it's 29% higher than the average level. Um, so uh, a lot of that was back-end loaded. Uh, I think we talked over a number of weeks about how uh, from September onwards, there seemed a real race to um, launch new funds or raise additional capital. And certainly the Q4 fundraising numbers for last year were the highest that we've seen in the last 12, 13 years. So very, very strong. But you're right to mention the IPOs. That was a more difficult story. We saw eight IPOs in the whole of 2020, of which half were in December, managed to get away in December. So again, very back-end loaded. Uh, and even of those eight, I think we had a look at them. I think every single one failed to hit its uh, their, their target level. So um, there's a whole range. I think Home Reek was the most successful one last year, but every single one came in below their ideal target level that they were trying to raise. And I think there is a story there. I think it has become more difficult to launch new investment companies. It was true of 2019 as well. So this is not just a 2020 story. And I think that's a function of the fact that uh, a number of the kind of key investors in this space, particularly the wealth managers, um, some of them have become a little bit hesitant at backing new ideas. And the preference, I think, is very much to back existing uh, investment companies, those that have a proven track record and, and, and often have a dividend uh, history as well that they can take uh, some degree of familiarity. And frankly, they're, they're larger funds and larger and more liquid, and that works for a number of investors. So if you look at the placings, the 15 largest uh, placings that we saw across the investment company sector last year, I mean, the largest was for Greencoat UK Wind back in October, which raised 400 million. But if you go down the list of all 15, nearly every single one was oversubscribed. Hypnosis is on there a couple of times, unsurprisingly. Um, some of the, the more specialist property plays as well, but renewable energy infrastructure are very much to the fore as well. And obviously the yield that it offers, plus obviously it plays to ESG themes at the moment, which are very much in demand. So I think it's a good insight into the sector. I think probably the final thing to note is the amount of money just raised through regular TAP issuance. So this is just uh, investment trust companies trading on premium ratings and quite happy to issue shares to the to the market uh, if not every day, but with quite a high degree of regularity. So Smithson uh, Investment Trust raised over £400 million last year just from regular tapping out shares. Uh, worldwide Healthcare, over £300 million. Personal Assets, around about £200 uh, million. So these are quite a substantial amount of new capital has been uh, raised by these companies just by dint of regular issuance. So there sort of seems to be a bit of a story that the big incumbents are going to go on getting bigger, uh, the ones that can demonstrate that and raise money in that way, as you say. But anybody trying to break into this market is going to find it a little bit hard. I'm slightly concerned about that as a longer-term health of the investment trust sector. You'd want to see a steady stream of uh, new companies coming to the market, even if they are doing traditional equity trust. It would be good to see one or two more there, in my view. But I dare say we're all living through strange times and this demand for yield is going to remain dominant. How does the amount of capital raised or secondary issues combined compare to how much capital was taken out of the sector during the year? Because, of course, there's ebbs and flows, are there not? There's money coming in all the time and there's also money going out all the time. 
Yep, that is a, a very good question. And I can tell you that there was more money raised last year than more money flowed out. And that's been, been true for a number of years. So just to put some numbers on that, uh, the aggregate number of uh, buybacks, for instance, um, that was about 1.7 billion last year. Uh, in terms of tenders and, and redemptions, that was just short of a billion. So kind of 2.7 billion in aggregate. And also there were a number of investment companies that were liquidated as well. So you see some money go out in those terms. But with all those three uh, items combined, far more money came into the sector last year. And again, that's been true for quite a few years. The sector has grown. And again, just to, to make the point that the stats in terms of new companies launched since the start of 2010, uh, we, we estimate there's about 144 investment companies has been launched over that uh, 10, 11 year period. Uh, and yield has been a key element of, of the 144, 102, around about 70% or so had a yield target of 4% or more. So we've really seen quite a change in the way the uh, investment company sector looks as an income being the key dominant theme. But you're right, I think it's to the health of the sector that we've been able to attract in some really interesting mandates, some very good uh, investment managers. Uh, and let's hope that that can continue because I think that's very important for the, the, the sector's future. Indeed it is. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Uh, thank you, Simon, for your time. Obviously, we'll start to get a bigger stream of uh, results and news coming out over the next few weeks, I imagine. But it's a good time to take stock, as we have been doing here this time. And uh, we look forward to uh, talking again next week and when we will uh, be heading towards having a new president in the White House, which will be an interesting uh, new stage in global geopolitics ahead of us. So thank you, Simon, and we'll look forward to speaking next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.